Today we are participating in the Lord's Supper, which is, uh, which is a very appropriate thing to do the last Sunday. Uh, we've been working our way through the Bible this year, all the way through the Bible. So, of course, today we can only appropriately finish in the book of Revelation. And uh, I just want to focus on three verses in the book of Revelation today. Um, and this idea of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I felt that that was also a very appropriate um, topic to be talking about here as we participate in the Lord's Supper. Um, before we get started, let's open up in prayer. Father, we love you. And Father, we thank you for your love for us. Father, first off, we thank you for creating us, for bringing us into existence, for giving us life, and Father, for giving us a hope and a future. Father, we thank you for giving us your word for revealing yourself to us through your word and that we live you bless this country so much that all of us have a copy of your word and can easily get a copy of your word and father your words are the words of life and so father we thank you we thank you for not only revealing yourself to us but actually making a way for us to be united with you forever for leaving your throne in heaven and coming to earth and dying in our place in order to forgive us and you did it all because of your love for us. And so, Father, once again, we thank you for your love. We love you, Father. Please guide us during this service to, to understand what it is that you have in store for us and to live differently because of it. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name we pray. Amen. If you want, you can be flipping to Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 7. So Revelation is an apocalyptic book. We find at the end of the Bible, closes up God's complete book of Revelation to us. It's a vision by the Apostle John um, that was God gave John of the future. We were talking in our Sunday school class this morning. We're in the book of Daniel, and we were, Daniel is an apocalyptic book, and it has many things in there talking about the future. And uh, one one comment that I made this morning was that uh, I don't think that God gave us these apocalyptic messages of the future, these, these symbolic messages, these messages that, that are kind of shrouded in, in mystery, um, these beasts and all these different things that we don't readily quite know right off the bat exactly what it is. I don't think he gave it to Daniel or to any of us um, in order for us to decipher and figure out and then somehow change the future or to figure out exactly what it is that God is saying is going to happen so that once we know we can either either change it or avoid it. I don't believe that was the, the purpose. Um, God's apocalyptic messages that he gave us through Daniel and, and all the prophets, not just Daniel, but all the prophets of the Old Testament, all the things that he prophesied that would happen in the future, God receives glory. I mean, think of us today. When we think back of the Old Testament prophets and we think about the things that they foretold through the Word of God and then we look how they came to be and we look how they came to take place and, and how it all fulfilled in, in the Messiah, Jesus, and how he was a king that is going to come, but he was going to be born from Bethlehem and, and, and all these different things and how they were fulfilled already. And what does that do? That gives us confidence in our God. That causes us to glorify our God. That causes us to step back and, and say, wow, our God is amazing. 
how can you know the future like that? I mean, with all the people, we have billions of people in this world. How can you know what's going to happen? Obviously, we can't, but God does. And it causes us to be in awe of him. It causes us to step back in wonder of him, that he's so amazing. And we see these different fulfillments take place and we look back and say, wow, we have an amazing, amazing God. Well, there's a lot of things that are in Revelation that are still to come. There are a lot of things that haven't taken place. And God kind of shrouds a lot of that in mystery. And, and if, you, if you're, I mean, you know exactly what I'm saying, that it's mysterious exactly what's going to happen because all you got to do is pick up a, a bestseller book or, or turn to the right TV station or, or just pop in on the right church one Sunday and you're going to hear all kinds of different ideas of how the end of the world is going to take place and what countries the, the, different, the different symbols in here represent. And say, oh, well, this is Russia and this is the United States and this is so-and-so and this is so-and-so and, and this is how it's all going to take place. There's no end to the, to the ideas of, of what all these different things mean. I don't, I don't think that's the point. I don't think it's the point for God didn't give it to us for us to have a, a time clock to then figure out and point down and narrow down and say, this is exactly what all these mean and this is exactly when it's going to take place. That wasn't the point. The point in Revelation was very, 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 very clear. Always has been clear. If you start in chapter 1 and you start reading, you don't have to go very far to get to chapters 2 and 3. And you see a list of the seven churches. That's where it starts off. The seven churches. The letters to the, the seven churches. And when you read those lists to the seven churches, every single church, every message given to every single of the seven churches ends in a very similar way. They all end with, to the one who conquers, a promise is given. And the promise, point, all the promises in those seven churches point to the end of Revelation, to chapters 19, 20, 21, 22. And all these different things are the things that are promised in the end of eternal life, what the new earth is going to be like when God recreates the world. The, the first promise to the first church was that the one who conquers will be able to eat from the tree of life. And then we see at the end of the Revelation, we, talk, we see this holy city, Jerusalem, and we see the tree of life. The promises are the same. To the one who conquers, you will inherit eternal life. To the one who conquers, I will give you perfect future forever. To the one who conquers, you will spend it with me forever, with no pain, no sickness, no sorrow, no death, no nothing that God doesn't want. To the one who conquers at the end, we will live together. We will laugh together. God will be with his people and his people will be with God. And God's going to recreate the earth and the holy city of Jerusalem is going to come down to live on it. And he's going to live with us just like we saw in the first two chapters of the Bible with Adam and Eve in the garden to the one who conquers. And what does it mean to the one who conquers? Well, if you read the whole book, it paints the same picture that while we're here on this earth, we have an enemy. And the enemy is gathering up 
an army, we call them Satan, demons, those who, the, the beast, the different people, the, 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 um, the harlot, the different people talked about in Revelation, that we have an enemy who wants to stomp us out and wants to kill us. And in John's day, when this revelation was given, it's a lot more real than in our day in the United States. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but I'm saying in, in, in our day in the United States in 2019 and in the majority of your lives here, God has blessed this country so much that we haven't had to face what the majority of Christians had to face. Here, the apostles were all killed. They were all martyred. John is the one that we see that lives the longest life. And church history says, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to say it the best I can remember it. Church history says that uh, uh, whoever the emperor or governor, or whoever it was at the time, of, um, tried to actually kill John, the apostle John, by throwing him in a, a boiling hot pot of grease or oil. Um, they, had to, they tried to deep fry him. As, you know, because that's what they did with Christians. They killed them for show. But the church, early church history says that John popped his arms over after he was dropped in and began to preach to the crowd. He didn't die. And it's said that it so scared the crowd, the party was over. Party ended. And then instead of trying to kill John a second time, he was banished to the island of Patmos. That's how the story goes. Because if they, he thought that if I tried to kill him a second time and he survived a second attempt, then everyone would believe in Jesus. So instead of taking that risk, they banished him to the island of Patmos, which is where he has this revelation and gives us this letter. Now, is that, is that true? I don't know. I, I'll just assume it is. I'll take it for granted. I don't see why the early church would lie about it. But that, that is the story of all the early apostles. That is the story of the early church followers, those who followed Christ. They faced immediate persecution. They were banished from the synagogues. They were kicked out. They were, they were rounded up. They were thrown in prison. They were killed. That's what they had to live in. And Jesus is giving them a message of hope, saying, no matter what you face, no matter how hard your enemy tries to take you out, whether it's torture or death, no matter what you face, do not give up. Do not give up. Do not turn your back on me because I will give you eternal life. Jesus said, don't be afraid of the person who can kill your body and can't kill your soul, but be afraid of the one who can both kill your body and throw your soul into hell when you die. Jesus said, don't be afraid of men because this life is temporary. It's temporary. It's not very long. What I have in store is for eternity. So if you hold on to your faith in me, then you will be granted all these things. You'll be granted eternal life. You'll be granted a perfect life, a perfect, wonderful future. And that's the promise that we have. That's the promise that we have. And then he chooses, and this is why I want to focus on these three verses. 
Here we're getting to chapter 19. So by the end of Revelation, God is describing now the fall of the enemy, the fall of Babylon, the fall of the beast, the fall of Satan. The end of Revelation, God talks about how he's going to punish them all, throw, throw them all into hell. It's all going to be over, and the war is going to be done. And in the, midst of, in the midst of that, there's a celebration in heaven, chapter 19. I'm going I'm to back up to verse 6. Verse 6 says, Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God the Almighty reigns. And verse 7 says this, Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has prepared herself. See, God inspired the scriptures. Now, we can come up with all kinds of nice analogies. We can come up with all kinds of things, but we cannot lose sight because we've heard it all our lives because we were raised in church. We can't lose the beauty of this. God chose to decide how he was going to describe his relationships with us. We didn't make up the Bible. God did. And two things that we see is God describing himself as a perfect father and us as his children. He chose that. He chose that analogy. That's how he wants us to understand our relationship with him as a father who loves his children. And he also chose in more than one place, but here in into Revelation, he chose to also describe it as a marriage. As a marriage where Christ is the groom and the church is his bride. God chose that description. God chose to say, this is how I want to describe my relationship with you. And that alone should bring us to all. That alone should give us just extreme gratitude to believe that a God that loves us so much wants to describe his relationship with us as a father and children and as a, a, a we as a bride that he is going to marry. Because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. Then in verse 8, it says, She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. For the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. So here's the story. God said, my bride is the church. And what do you think of a bride on her wedding day? You think of her in her beautiful gown. And you always give her a compliment of how beautiful she looks, right? And this is what God says of that beautiful bride, the church. He said, you know what the most beautiful gown she can put on? Righteous acts. Righteous acts. That's what God thinks is beautiful. Our righteous acts. Now, this does not mean holier-than-thou righteousness legalism. What it simply means is non-sinful acts. Things that God would do. So if Jesus were here, what would he do? Well, if you do that, that's righteous. That's living in righteousness. Doing whatever God wants you to do. Not doing what God doesn't want you to do. 
That's all it is. Living the way God wants you to live. Living like he would live. Living the way he would do, live. Loving the people the way he would love people. Reaching out to people the way he would reach out to people. Helping people the way he would help people. That's what he thinks is the most beautiful thing you can put on. That's how he wants you to prepare yourself for the wedding day of the marriage of the Lamb. That's how he wants you to clothe yourself in righteous acts. And then verse 9, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, These words of God are true. Blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Now, I've said it many times, but I don't think it's just because I'm Baptist. I am looking forward to that feast. I am. When I think of heaven, usually the first happy image that comes to my mind, and you say, well, you really are Baptist. Usually the first happy image that comes to my mind is sitting at a table, eating and drinking with Jesus, laughing. That's what I picture. We are sitting at a table, eating and drinking together, laughing. I love that. And guess what? Some fancy or, or very well eloquently spoken preacher didn't come up with that. God came up with that. God said, let me tell you what I want to do. Let me tell you what I'm looking forward to. God said, when this life is over and you have suffered as long as you had to suffer on this earth, and you went through all the pain that the enemy wanted to throw your way and try to crush you, but you did not give up on your relationship with me. This is what I'm looking forward to, God said. I'm looking forward to embracing you as my son and daughter and committing to you as a husband commits to a wife forever, committing myself to you forever and sitting at a table laughing and eating and drinking together. And that's not the only thing we're going to do for eternity, obviously. We're going to do all the things God intended for us to do with Adam and Eve when he created the garden and he created the world and he told them to steward all of God's creation. We are going to steward all of God's new creation. We're going to travel. We're going to see stars. And, you know, it used to bother me a long time ago. I thought, man, the galaxy and the stars are so beautiful. But the scripture says that there's going to be no night, that it's only going to be sun, sunlight, because God is just going to be the sunlight. There will be no night. There's no night. We can't see stars. But then I read it again and realized, no, he's just talking about in the city. Just in the holy city, Jerusalem, that comes from heaven down to earth, there it will be sunlight all the time. It doesn't say it's going to be sunlight all the time around the world. We're still going to travel. We're still going to see. We're still going to see the beauty of God's creation. We're still going to see all the magnificent creatures and, and all the things that he's made, that he's made for us to enjoy. And there'll be no violence. There'll be no, I mean, there will be spiders, but we won't, we won't care. 
they won't bite us. We won't be afraid of them. We won't be running from snakes. Believe it or not, you will like all the things you can't stand right now. You will. It's going to be amazing. And so I tell Lindsay all the time, let's just stay home now and we'll travel the world then. But yeah, doesn't work that way, does it? I'm telling you, there are some beautiful sights around this world. But there is nothing in comparison to what God is going to make. And I look forward to checking it all out. And I believe we're still going to invent. I believe we're still going to dig up, mine minerals and metal and make things because God is creative. God is the most creative being who's ever been in this world, in existence. And he created us in his image to create and be creative. That's why artists take our breath away sometimes in some of the things that they do. It's amazing. We're going to do that for eternity. So for anybody who who thinks about heaven and thinks about eternity and thinks, oh, it's just going to be floating around in clouds with harps and, and playing music. That, that is so far from what God has intended for eternity. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has even conceived of what God has in store for us. And so when we think about our lives, and I'll close with this, Adam and Eve, they all lived 900 and Almost a thousand years. I am so glad that God cut our lifespans down to at max a hundred. I would not want to be here for 900 years. I want to be with God forever. Forever. And his limiting our time here on earth is actually an act of mercy. That we don't have to suffer any longer than we have to. I love God. I pray that everyone in this room loves him even more than I do. But all of our love combined doesn't come close to his love for us. And not just us, but everybody he's placed on this earth. So let's not give up hope for anyone because God is wanting, willing and ready to save each and every one of us no matter how much time we have left he wants us all to spend eternity with him sitting at that table eating and drinking and laughing and telling stories with him and I'm looking forward to it if the deacons would please come down to the front pew. <clears throat> if you are not sure, I want to offer this opportunity before we have communion. If you are not sure that you've made the commitment to place your faith in Christ, if you're not sure that you've decided, I want to surrender my life to God, because I want him. I want him forever. I want him and he wants me. Then there is absolutely nothing keeping you from making that decision right now. Nothing. There's nothing standing in your way. Let's pray together. 
Father, you are amazing and holy and wonderful and mighty and loving. And Father, I want to start off by offering an invitation to anyone in this room who has not made a decision to follow you, who has not made a decision to place their faith and trust completely in you for their salvation. Father, I pray that nothing stops them from doing that right now. That they would say from an honest heart, Father, I love you. Father, I know I've sinned, and because I've sinned against you, I don't deserve to spend eternity with you, but I want to. I want you, Father. I want to spend eternity with you. And so, Father, I ask you and I beg you to forgive me. Father, forgive me of my sins. Father, you've, you've offered to me eternal life. You have offered to me a perfect future for all of eternity. And, Father, nothing is worth more than you. And so, Father, I give you my life. I commit myself to you for the rest of my life, however long or however short you've given me. Father, I love you, and I want to be with you forever, and I trust you, and I will not turn my back on you. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.